A new book by one of Washington's most legendary journalists reveals shocking new details surrounding the January 6th assault on the Capitol. California's governor gets to keep his job and the Secretary of State on the hot seat over Afghanistan. I'm Paul Brandis. You're listening to West Wing Reports. It's Friday, September 17th. Here's some context. The attack on the Capitol back in January, it's impossible to overstate what a shock to the system it was. For one, this was the worst attack on Washington since 1814, when the British invaded and torched the Capitol, which was still under construction, plus the White House and other federal buildings. The worst attack in two centuries, which means those who want to move on, forget it, insist it wasn't a big deal. Well, it was a big deal. A new book by the Washington Post's Bob Woodward and Robert Costa claims that Pentagon leaders were so worried about then-President Trump's instability and erratic behavior that he might try and launch a war, even use nuclear weapons. The book, it's called Peril, claims that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, had learned from intelligence reports that China was nervous and actually feared a possible American attack. So Milley called his counterpart in Beijing to calm him down and maintain the peace. Woodward and Costa write that military leaders believe that Trump was in, quote, serious mental decline two days after the attack on the Capitol. Milley that day also got a call from Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, and second in line for the presidency. She was as worried as the general was. Woodward and Costa got an actual transcript of that call. Pelosi says, quote, Who knows what he might do? He's crazy. You know he's crazy. He's been crazy for a long time. And what did he do yesterday? She meant two days ago is further evidence of his craziness. General Milley says, quote, Madam Speaker, I agree with you on everything. Milley then brought in other generals, the top U.S. military commanders, and reminded them of the procedures that must be followed, procedures that are a safety measure to ensure that wars are not started accidentally or by some rogue commander. Now, Milley has come under criticism by Trump fans for talking to the Chinese, but lesser known is that Trump's hand-picked Defense Secretary, Mark Esper, also had concerns about this and also, according to the news service Axios, began taking steps as far back as October, even before the election, to maintain peace and stability. Esper asked his own aides to get the message out through back channels absolutely extraordinary and shows you how dangerous the situation was. Our top defense officials actually fear that President Trump was instable and erratic and could start a war. Now, for their part, Trump aides are outraged at this reporting. Trump himself has attacked Milley. There have been comments to the effect that the general, in talking to China, overstepped his authority and was acting treasonously. There's something else from the Woodward book as well. And for that, let's talk with an old friend, Greg Sargent. He writes the widely followed Plum Line column in the Washington Post. But let's go back, uh, meantime, to uh, Peril, the book by Woodward and uh, Costa. You know, among the bombshells, and you've written about this, uh, Greg, 
Mike Pence, vice president at the time, of course, said publicly back on January the 6th that he lacked the power to help then President Trump overturn the election in Congress. That was the day they were certifying the electoral college results. He said, well, I can't do that. At the time, it looked like Pence was sort of the good guy, here, a hero, following the Constitution, respecting the law, all of that. Uh, we now know, based on this book, that there's a lot more to the story. What is it? Well, what uh, according to the press accounts of the book, which I have not read, um, but the press accounts quoted some stuff verbatim, and what they told us was that that, that, that story is really um, kind of practically mythological about Pence being kind of this hero who stood up forcefully for the Constitution and the rule of law in the face of Trump's pressure to, to try and destroy them both. What really happened was that in a conversation just before January 6th, Trump was uh, continuing with his pressure campaign on Mike Pence, and Pence assured him up and down that he had done everything he possibly could to try and do Trump's bidding, which meant at the time, subvert the uh, count of the Electoral College votes in Congress. And that's not the right answer. The right answer is, Mr. President, you lost the election. We're not going to subvert the count by any means. And, and you know, one might sort of say, well, maybe Pence was just kind of blowing smoke uh, up Trump's you-know-what um, by saying this and just trying to placate him. But the book also reports, according to the press accounts, that he told uh, former Vice President Dan, Dan Quayle the same thing. And in fact, in their conversation, he said, are you sure there's nothing I can do? Are you sure? Is there anything I can do? And, and that's pretty remarkable. That's not heroic behavior. Yeah, so it's not for a lack of trying. In fact, uh, the press accounts of the book actually give uh, a couple of lines from one of these conversations that uh, Trump and Pence uh, had. And I'm going to read that just uh, quickly for our listeners here. And it starts with uh, Trump saying, if these people say you had the power, wouldn't you want to? And then Pence responds, I wouldn't want any one person to have that authority. And then according to Woodward and Costa, Trump came back with, but wouldn't it be almost cool to have that power? No, Pence said. And then Pence added, I've done everything I could and then some to find a way around this. It's simply not possible. So as you say, Greg, that's not exactly uh, a hero in my book. Right. And it's important to reiterate that he also said this to Dan Quayle. So it couldn't have just been him essentially trying to placate Trump into believing that he had done all he could. The Pence stuff is also important for another reason, not just because it tells us this or that about how Pence himself conducted himself. But as I reported, um, the January 6th Select Committee now has additional reasons to kind of flesh out the full story of Pence's role. Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland, who's on the select committee, told me that they'd be looking at this. And, and the key thing to understand there is that um, there are all sorts of questions that arise about what they did behind the scenes uh, to try and make this thing happen uh, for Trump, including potentially that pressuring the Justice Department uh, to uh, try and find a, a legal rationale for Pence to somehow subvert the count. I'm not saying that this happened, but these will be things that they need to flesh out. And 
And one other point that I think is worth mentioning is that Pence uh, reportedly, according to another book, told his security detail that under no circumstances would he permit himself to be removed from the premises. And I think we need to understand why he was so adamant. Did he understand in some way that has not been public what the whole plot really entailed? Anyway, the point being that these new revelations really should compel us to look harder at Pence's overall role in the entire scheme. Greg, the other thing I wanted to talk with you about is this recall vote in California. Governor Gavin Newsom has survived. He'll keep his job. And it wasn't even close. He got about 64 percent of the vote. No surprise, that's a heavily blue state. And President Biden calls this, quote, a resounding win, unquote, for everything he, meaning Biden, is trying to do, get people vaccinated, open schools safely, and so forth. Uh, So, Greg, the question is for both Democrats and Republicans looking at what happened in California. What are the takeaways as you see it? Well, I think the biggest takeaway has to do with the politics of COVID, and there are two sides to this. Uh, A lot of the analyses have correctly pointed out that Newsom and Democrats leaned very hard into vaccine mandates and COVID protections, uh, and that this galvanized Democratic voters. But the other side of that same coin is that they also leaned very hard into prosecuting the case against GOP extremism and radicalization when it comes to opposing sensible public health measures in the face of a surging pandemic. And that too is what galvanized Democratic voters. And to me, that's a really crucial takeaway because right now in the Virginia governor's race, we're also seeing this basic template being tested. Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat, is running hard on vaccine and mask mandates, but also on attacking Republicans for being uh, essentially deranged in their opposition to any and all uh, collective solutions to, 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 the, to COVID. And so if this works in Virginia and we see large, or at least relatively large turnout in places like the suburbs of DC and Northern Virginia and the suburbs around Richmond, will then be able to say that two times in a row, uh, a very aggressive posture against Republican extremism really drove uh, Democratic turnout, even without Trump on the ballot. And I think Virginia is actually the more interesting uh, of those two state simply by virtue of the fact that it's not as blue as California. So depending on how McAuliffe does, that could be perhaps a more accurate uh, weather vane for next year. Yeah, I think that's true. Although I would also point out that the, the, the margin is matters in California, but what I think might be arguably at least as important or maybe more important is turnout, right? Democratic voters, turned out at higher rates than I think many expected. And that is what I think makes the uh, recall outcome significant for the races that are to follow, including Virginia and the midterms. Now, the other thing, though, is that 2022 is still about, uh, what, 13, 14 months away. You got to wonder, is there any kind of, uh, you know, would this have a legs for an entire a year, I suppose that depends on how long this pandemic goes on. Right, and I think um, arguably it would be a, 
a good problem for Democrats to have if this weren't an issue anymore, obviously, because we would have defeated COVID or at least made some major headway from where we are now. Um, but I do think that continually adding to the indictment against the, the slide into serious radicalization on the part of the Republican Party is something Democrats have to do at every opportunity. They really need to cast Demo uh, Repub the Republican Party as a danger to the country. Uh, we'll be, you know, the, the January 6th Select Committee's investigation will be heating up next year, and I think that will make a difference. And for obvious reasons, that will provide another opening to make a strong and vivid case against how radical Republicans have become, uh, because they're going to be resisting at all costs any kind of uh, accounting or reckoning with a violent effort to overthrow a U.S. election. And things, I would think, uh, could be drawn together to make a broad case that that the Republican Party is just really, really kind of flown off the deep end in, in, in the post-Trump era. Let's uh, talk a bit more about that in just a second, but uh, I wanted to ask you about this. You know, the pandemic has been uh, particularly hammering two big red states, Florida and Texas. Now, somebody asked me the other day, well, why can't they uh, recall uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor down there? Floridians don't have the power to recall elected officials. They simply can't uh, do it. But Texans, uh, I believe, can, based on something in the Texas government code called Chapter 665. I admit I have not read Chapter 665, but apparently it does allow the recall of state uh, uh, officials. So what about efforts to, uh, say, move against uh, Governor Abbott, who I don't think was uh, ever as uh, popular as uh, Governor Newsom has been in California? Well, I mean, I, 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 don't really, I don't really have a view on that, to be honest with you. It seems to me that that would be very difficult to accomplish. Um, but the, the point you're making, I think, stands in another way, which is that governors like Ron DeSantis in Florida and Greg Abbott in Texas are clearly pandering to a Trump rump, a national, uh, a national electorate that is really a small minority that is very deep uh, enthralled to the Trump movement and all its obsessions. And it seems clear that this is taking them out of the very far from the mainstream when it comes to the biggest issue facing the country right now, which is resurgent COVID. My thanks to Greg Sargent of The Washington Post. So the war in Afghanistan is over, but the war over Afghanistan, well, that's still going on. And whenever something goes wrong or appears to go wrong, that's when the opposition party's outrage machine kicks into high gear, holding hearings, pointing fingers, always trying to gain partisan advantage. That was the case this week when Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was summoned to Capitol Hill to testify about the American withdrawal last month from Afghanistan. One of the Republicans who grilled him was Florida Congressman Brian Mast. Here's a portion of their exchange with Mast speaking first. Mr. Secretary, as the transcript, the leaked transcript, as you referred to it, says, uh, did the the President Biden work with the coward exiled president of Afghanistan to manipulate the intelligence about the Taliban? 
what the president said to President, uh, then President Ghani uh, in, in private is exactly what he said in public, that the issue was not whether Afghanistan had the capacity uh, to withstand the, the Taliban. It's whether it had the will and the plan to do so. He He's urged him. The transcript is a lie. It's, well, it's have false. That, uh, plan. It's incorrect. So words like false, lies, and later a phrase, manipulated evidence, all accusations leveled against President Biden. Now, for its part, the White House denies all this, saying the withdrawal was bound to be messy whenever it occurred. The ugliness behind these comments is a reflection of one of Washington's biggest problems, the distrust that each side has for the other, which makes it harder to get things done. And now that the dust has settled and most Americans are moving on, what do the polls say? Well, one reason Republicans smell blood here is because most Americans think the withdrawal was botched. After all, 13 troops were killed. At the same time, though, most Americans also think that it was about time we got out of Afghanistan after 20 years, and Biden did. So there's something of the data for both sides here. Historians will be debating all this for years to come. No shortage of economic news this week. On the jobs front, unemployment rates were stable in 35 states and lower in 15 states, plus D.C. in August. That's what the Labor Department said Friday. Highest unemployment rate, Nevada, 7.7 percent. Lowest, Nebraska, just 2.2 percent. Seems easy to find work in Nebraska if you're so inclined. And speaking of jobs, if you are not vaccinated, you may find a tougher time finding work. By the end of August, the share of job postings on Indeed.com mentioning vaccination requirements rose 242 percent from the same point in July. Some companies say if you're not vaccinated, don't even think of applying. Time now for our soundbite of the week. This week it comes from former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. He was speaking at the Reagan Library out in California and his topic, well, let's just say some fellow Republicans might not want to hear it. Listen, as Republicans, we need to free ourselves from the quicksand of endless grievances. We need to turn our attention to the future and stop wallowing in the past. We need to face the realities of the 2020 election and learn, not hide from them. We need to discredit the extremists in our midst the way we've done it before. And we'll discuss that a little bit more in a moment. We need to renounce the conspiracy theorists and the truth deniers the ones who know better, and the ones who are just plain nuts. We need to give our supporters facts that will help them put all those fantasies to rest so everyone can focus with clear minds on the issues that really matter. We need to quit wasting our time, our energy, and our credibility on claims that won't ever convince anyone of anything. We need to learn to win, both as Republicans and Americans again. Now, the only way to push back against policies we know are wrong is to focus on alternatives that the American people will see are right, 
Nothing else, nothing else is going to win Congress back for Republicans in 2022 or the White House in 2024. Enough with the wishful thinking and the self-delusion. We are also so long and overdue to stop wallowing in the past. We need to be the party that embraces the truth, the truth, even when it's painful and unacceptable. Grievances and conspiracy theories always die hard, but they can only live in the darkness. Their days are numbered once the light of truth shines down on them. You know, what's interesting here is that the applause for Christie wasn't exactly overwhelming. Let's hear that one sentence again, just hear how much applause Christie actually got. We need to renounce the conspiracy theorists and the truth deniers, the ones who know better and the ones who are just plain nuts. We need to give our supporters facts. All he's saying here is that Republicans need to focus on facts and the truth. All he gets, though, in return is some nervous laughter and some mild and short-lived applause. You can interpret what that means for yourself. I think that's really interesting. Let's take a quick look now at some polling data, not individual polls, but aggregations of them. In other words, you take all the individual polls, put them in a blender and hit puree, and what comes out are two of these so-called poll of polls. The first is the Real Clear Politics average. It shows President Biden's approval, 45.2%, disapproval, 49.8%. The other poll of polls is 538's aggregate. Similar results there. It shows Biden's approval at 46%, disapproval at 49.1%. So the president, eight months into his term, is underwater in both the low point of his presidency so far. And the president was actually asked about this the other day. He didn't seem too worried. He said, I'm a big boy. I've been doing this a long time. Still, there's no doubt the White House wants this slide reversed. They're hoping that the infrastructure bill, the social spending bills get passed. But the main thing continues to be the pandemic, which simply won't go away. The data shows at this point it's largely because of folks who refuse to get vaxxed or wear a mask. The pandemic, as Biden says, the pandemic of the unvaccinated. And that's where we are with that. Somehow public health, public safety has been politicized. Now let's open the West Wing Reports archives and take a look at what made history this week in the past. 1787, the final draft of the Constitution was signed in Philadelphia, replacing the Articles of Confederation. The Constitution devised a system of checks and balances among three separate but equal branches of government, the executive, the legislature, and the judiciary. One critical debate among the founding fathers, should big states and small states be represented in Congress equally or by size. It was decided that big states and small states would be represented both equally and by size. Thus, both the Senate, which represents all states equally, and the House, which represents all states by size. 
1994, a major security scare. Listen to this. A stolen airplane crashed just steps from the White House, just below the president's bedroom. The president back then was Bill Clinton, of course, and because of maintenance being done to the White House ventilation system, he and Mrs. Clinton and daughter Chelsea were not at home. They were sleeping at Blair House down the street. The pilot, a 38-year-old guy named Frank Quarter stole the plane, a two-seat Cessna, from a Maryland airport on, get this, September 11th. No one tried to stop Quarter as his plane approached the White House. He was killed on impact, the incident prompting a sweeping review of security procedures by the Secret Service. These tidbits, by the way, are in one of my books on this day, this day in presidential history. You can also follow me on Twitter, by the way, West Wing Report, where I tweet about this stuff every day. Time now to highlight one of the terrific podcasts by one of my evergreen colleagues. This week, it's Wild Precious Life by Anne-Marie Kelly. She's an author, educator, lifelong learner. We should all be lifelong learners, right? Anyway, Anne-Marie talks with the most interesting group of writers, musicians, entrepreneurs, and wanderers, folks who inspire all of us to reach beyond our divisions and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. Here's a little teaser. What is it you want? I mean it. If you really got to choose, if you had a little magic, what would you want to do with your life? Sure, some of us would quit our jobs and see the world, climb that mountain or walk along the beach, but then what? Are there problems you would solve? I raised money for the New York Food Bank, um, and I think we raised enough for 200,000 meals. Wrongs you would make right? We will say we don't want to take care of any of these things, while we're looking at the consequences of not providing those safety nets, right? COVID didn't have to be this bad. Whose forgiveness would you seek? I was reading it, I'm like, I think I might be the villain of this story. I'm not on the team. In fact, I'm shaking the book hard. And I'm like, oh no. What wounds might you heal? You know, I feel like I should just throw up a little flag here to say that one of the unacknowledged conditions of the American healthcare system is the way its bureaucracy itself is a wounding. And what are you waiting for? I feel held, I feel seen, and I feel loved. Our days may be messy or complicated or broken, but they are ours. And I think we can do better, listen harder, and love more deeply. We can find our way to something more. I'm Anne-Marie Kelly, writer, teacher, learner. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in, and connecting across distance, division, and loss. We are all hungry for those connections right now. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, entrepreneurs, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. Subscribe and follow Wild Precious Life on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and get the first episode in your feed as soon as it comes out. See you soon. 
Wild Precious Life by Anne-Marie Kelly. I know you'll enjoy it. Just go to evergreenpodcasts.com. We end, as usual, with a quote, something to perhaps inspire you. This week, it's from Thomas Jefferson, our third president. Honesty, he said, is the first chapter of the Book of Wisdom. Think about it. West Wing Reports is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to C-SPAN for the audio clips. Our producer and sound engineer and designer, Noah Fouts. Executive producers, Michael DeAloya and Gerardo Orlando. Thanks. We'll see you next week. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.